Welcome to the Bonhoeffer Podcast, a podcast about the life, theology, and practice of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm your host, Corey Tuttle, and my guest today is the first ever return guest to the podcast, Laura Fabriki. Laura is an author, and uh, she just released her new book, Keys to Bonhoeffer's House. Laura, thanks so much for coming back. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me, Corey. Yeah, glad to. Well, last time that I talked to you, um, you were getting ready to leave Berlin and then uh, head back to the States, I think. And something tells me, based on the scheduling, that you are no longer in the States. So uh, catch us up. Where are you at now? That's exactly right. Yes, I think when we last spoke, we were wrapping up our tour in Berlin And we then did summer, as is congressionally mandated to all Foreign Service families. We have to be in the U.S. for at least four weeks. And um, so we did that and uh, reconnected with some family and then uh, moved to our next assignment, which is in Brussels, Belgium. So we have, there are three U.S. missions here, three U.S. embassies, uh, the normal bilateral one, the one to the EU, and then the U.S. mission to NATO. And that's where my husband is currently working. So we are slated to be here for three years, and um, and as I wrote in my book, I knew that I would be probably talking about our life in Berlin, living here in Brussels, so that's mm-hmm. that's where we are now. Oh, wow. That yeah. sounds great. Uh, have you found any uh, Belgian theologians to be a volunteer guide for? <laughs> I know. It's actually a great question. I am already um, starting some studies. Really? I have not yet found a place yet. Not proper studies, but just my own personal ones, my yeah. amateur studying. Um, and I have not found a place where I could be a tour guide. I think I probably won't have quite that much luck. Um, but I am learning a lot about Belgium. And I've so far in our eight months here, I've absolutely loved living here. It's mm-hmm. a it's a sweet country. Um, obviously, the food is great, good frites, good beer, good, you know, mm-hmm. chocolate. And, um, and I've been learning a lot just recently about um, a kind of lay religious movement called the Beguines. It was a female lay religious movement. And they, Beguines um, formed uh, as probably, I'm reading right now a, a very um, scholarly account of the Beguines written by a man named Walter Simons. And um, they had, as he describes it, cities of ladies uh, all around the low countries of Europe. And I am quite interested, knowing we're going to talk about civic housekeeping, but I'm quite interested in um, these cities of ladies, uh, collections yeah. of women that were uh, lived in community and were primarily kind of like lay-led and lay-formed. And I'm particularly taken with that right now. <laughs> well, that was <laughs> mostly a joke, but <laughs> well, good on you. <laughs> I was like, uh, yeah, well, there's no chance that this is happening. And then there you go. <laughs> Jumping right. right in. That's right. But uh, we're not here to talk begins. We're here to talk on <laughs> No, no, you're good. Uh, so how are things going with the coronavirus there? Um, well, I, I guess I should preface this by saying um, if you are in the future listening back to this episode, this is recorded during our quarantine, our you know, stay-at-home orders. Um, but you are in Belgium, which I imagine... Yeah. Maybe a little yeah. bit similar as far as the orders, but how are things going over there? Yeah, so we have um, we have been, I suppose, under kind of like a, a lockdown sort of quarantine situation for six to seven weeks, I guess. 
Um, and Belgium is, as you know, it's a pretty small country, but I know that there's been recent press, like speaking now into the future, but mm -hmm. recently there's been some press about how Belgians, um, Belgians per capita death numbers are quite high. They're actually, I think, among the highest in the world. Mm -hmm. It's a country of like 11 million people, but they have logged, I think it's 7,000 deaths. It's actually a pretty high number. And some of that, I actually respect the Belgians a lot for doing this because they are trying to account both for numbers that are confirmed with COVID-19 and also suspected um, infections not that have not been confirmed. So yeah. they're kind of hoping to have a, like an overly honest accounting. Um, and But I have felt profoundly safe here. Like it's been, I'm very gratified with the way that people are handling things. So it's, um, I think greater transparency is better than less so it's uh it's good yeah uh well that's great i mean yeah it's pretty similar here i'm, I'm in washington state and i think we are doing maybe the the best or one of the best states as far as stay-at-home orders and, and the the death rate and the all, all of that stuff it seems to be pretty low here i know that i have left my house like twice in the last six months uh, the last yeah. not six months six, six weeks <laughs> uh in the last six weeks uh so I, i'm i'm working from home it's great because i mean i have the girls here so i see them a lot more um i for, for the listener i have twin three-year-olds like normally i come home and it's like the end of the day they're all tired because they're not napping and you know it's kind of like a they're not very happy to see me they're ready to go to bed um but it's been a lot of fun because you know i'll get up and I'll, i'm in this back room but i'll get up and go get a glass of water and then they just sprint past me and jump into my chair and say this is my chair my laptop my keyboard you know that's sweet yeah, yeah. i know it's i mean it's it's funny how this is it is such a time of suffering for so many people and mm. Um, but for those of us who are trying to live in these, you know, to, to live responsibly and to show love to our neighbors, there are so many sweet aspects to it. And, uh, and I definitely am giving thanks for all those little, the manas of the day, you know, mm -hmm. like there's a lot of really sweet parts to it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think you're exactly right. I found that I'm like, my life has just been simplified so much. I think. <laughs> I joke like this is absolutely not about me, so I take this with a grain of salt. But I have been working tirelessly, losing so much sleep, working full time and doing grad school full time and doing this thesis, and then I turn it in, and then I'm mandated to stay home. <laughs> it's like right after I turned it in, it's like, oh, you're done with your homework? Okay, well now now that you would have free time, uh, you're gonna stay home. But like it's it's great because it just allows me to like you know spend a lot more time with my family than I have probably for the past year. Um, but it's good. So you wrote this book. Um, you, you came on last time. You kind of gave us a, um, a little bit of a preview um, as you were working on it. But now now it's released. Congratulations, by the way. Um, I, I wrote a not even half of a book this year, and it almost killed me. So, um, first question is uh, based on your actual book and what you write in it, uh, you had a toddler at the time of writing a book. So how in the world did you do that? <laughs> well, as I talk about in my book quite a bit, I you get a lot of me going to and from preschool. Uh -huh. um, and I was really blessed with, obviously, my older two are older. Um, and then my youngest was in a uh, a, a bilingual Q 
PETA, as they're called, or bilingual preschool. So um, he spent uh, good chunks of the day there. That's what enabled me to be able to do tours and at-home learning. And he he had a much better time playing with friends at the preschool than he ever would have being in the house with me. Um, and so that really did free up a lot of my, um, you know, a lot of my bandwidth to be able to just have this experience. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then, yeah, we, you know, uh, I got a lot of support from my family, you know, like my husband on the weekends when he was home from work, he would let me just kind of seclude into a room and, um, and, and get chunks of writing done. So it was, um, it wasn't magic. It was, you know, it, it was still like slogging out, but mm -hmm. it was uh, slogging out a book, but, um, it was a really gratifying experience. And I will say that it did help me to kind of synthesize a lot of things that I had picked up along the way during this experience. Cause as I'll just to give a brief preface to those, um, who may not be familiar keys to Bonhoeffer's house is, a historically grounded memoir about my experience as a volunteer guide at the Bonhoeffer House in Berlin, Germany. And during our, our family's three-year diplomatic assignment to Berlin, um, I served for two of those years as a volunteer guide at the house. Um, and so I, I spent a lot of time just doing self-study and um, practicing by observing other guides and learning from them and of course each guide kind of has a way that they look at Bonhoeffer and details about his life that they attend to so for me you get you get some taste of the way that I was thinking about his life and trying to make sense of it and make sense of my own life in fact like allowing allowing my life to be put into conversation with his so it is definitely not a biography of Bonhoeffer um, but it is a way of expressing my own kind of sense making about his life and my own. And, and I think that many different people could write a book like this for someone that they've studied. Like for you, Corey, you have done a deep dive into Bonhoeffer as well. And you, you have your own kind of lenses of seeing him and, and even probably how you might make sense of him in the, in the shape of your life, right? Mm -hmm. Like with your, daughters or in your marriage or in your neighborhood and so for me that was what that's what this book was was my attempt to kind of synthesize okay what has this experience been like and what have I learned and what would I like to share with others so mm. wow yeah I can uh, I can attest to all of that um I so I have this kind of thing that it's just this weird thing that I do that kind of helps me get through my homework or books that I'm reading for this podcast is I'll just have like one fun book and then one like required book um, for the podcast or for, for whatever. Um, and like, I really enjoyed your book, um, but I always have that extra one going. And I happened to line up reading um, a book called Hillbilly El Elegy by J.D. Vance. Yeah. Um, so I was reading that and your book at the same time. And it was like just two memoirs. It was really interesting. But I yeah. found that with yours, I have I like... I don't know. I, I feel like I tell everyone that their book's great on this thing, but I've legitimately never read a book like yours um, because I'm like reading this, you know, this memoir for Hillbilly Elegy and being like, it, it's a story. If, if you don't know, if the listener doesn't know what it's about, um, it's a, a guy who's raised kind of in, 
backwoods town in Ohio, has a lot of trauma and crazy family dynamics, and then he ends up uh, going to Yale Law School, and like he was just reflecting on kind of his childhood and growing up and all those things. So it's like a it's a really well written memoir. But I was also reading yours at the same time, and, and yours, I was seeing like like it was amazing that you were kind of doing the same things that he was doing as far as like here's a memoir this is like what what's happening what's shaping my life but also it's like a history book as well like i've learned things i've been doing this podcast for over a year talking to bonhoeffer scholars read everything that bonhoeffer's ever written and like read your memoir and learned things new things about bonhoeffer that i haven't learned before so it was like I was blown away that you managed to kind of work all three of those things in. It's crazy. Thank you. It's, you know, I do think I have had a number of people say my book is is really hard to categorize because obviously it is a memoir, but I Mm. do, um, I'm, I'm not the star. I'm kind of a character in it in some ways. Like Mm. it's not simply about me. It is me trying to make sense of him. And I do think the fact that I, lived there it Mm. makes a big difference this isn't me simply observing things that he wrote it's me observing German culture and Mm. hearing it through it with American with an American mind and um so there were things that I don't think I would have understood have I had I not actually been there Mm -hmm. and made sense of and kind of had to live under in some ways. Obviously I'm separated from his life by time, Mm -hmm. but, um, and history and all that. And the many changes that have happened, um, since he lived. Um, but, but even just having kind of like day to day experiences with the Germans that serve at the house or that I could, I could piece things together other in ways just by living my life there I think it does make a big difference that's not to say people shouldn't take reading adventures because I'm honestly like not everybody's going to get to Berlin right it's not going to happen for everyone but um and I do think there's a lot that can be learned obviously when we're reading that's how I learned about Bonhoeffer was through was through reading so um but there is something to be said for lived experience and uh yeah so I'm very glad that you learned something that's (laughs) that just about just a perfect compliment so <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, it, was, it was great and it was also like such a nice uh break to i guess like the past uh, like the past three or four episodes have been really helpful for me in my writing and in my research um but also like i have to go and tap words on my kindle app to say what does that mean <laughs> uh you know i, I like made that joke uh, with, about um having Josh DeKaiser on last time and just being like, okay, can you explain that again? Uh, You know, like (laughs) talking about active being is so high level and you have to like, you're you're like working through it. And then, but it was just like a, allowed my soul to breathe a little bit to to kind of read, you know. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. It it was great. Um, I I will ask you this um, since you're talking about the, the culture over there. Tell me about these traffic lights for, for bicycles. Oh, they're great. <laughs> um, there's no, they're so great. They're so cute. So, um, at, you know, you have dedicated bike lanes and, mm-hmm. and then at a normal traffic, like at a normal cross section, uh, intersection, you'll have this, the, the, the automobile traffic light that's high up so people can see it from their cars. But then lower on that same pole, kind of in the direction of the of the bike lane, there's a small 
a small kind of red, yellow, and green light for the bicycle. And and prior to, it's at the same time as the pedestrian signal. When the pedestrian signal turns, the bike signal also turns green. So the two more vulnerable travelers, the, the pedestrian and the bicyclist, get a head start um, ahead of the automobile. Huh. And that means that it's kind of putting body facts on the ground. So if the if the if the automobile wants to turn right and they have two, you know, a bicyclist or a pedestrian crossing, they still have to properly wait their turn and that little head start makes it so that like they're gonna hit people if they don't yeah. if they don't stop. Huh. And it's um it's it's great. It's a it's a great system. <laughs> I, I just remember that's like some one of the things that kind of stuck in my mind reading your, your memoir yeah. is talking about you you riding the bike all the way all, you know all around town and it's saying they're frankly adorable and I'm like what are these traffic lights they're just tiny <laughs> yeah they're tiny and you just and even the tra- even the like, lanes I think you know they're dotted to like uh-huh. indicate you could move around and it just looks diminutive yeah. and so it's cute yeah. and um yeah I that love makes it. Sense. <laughs> That'd be really useful yeah. around here too. I love. I like ride ride my bike to work sometimes. And, um, yeah, it would be nice if there was designated bike lanes and stop signs for us or Absolutely. stop lights. I mean, even just acknowledging, like acknowledging your existence, like yeah. you're you're also a traveler. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. <laughs> awesome. Well, one of the things that I really enjoyed from your book that I had no clue about before I read it was um, you're going to have to help my German here. Um, Die Losungen. See, I was was not even close. (laughs) (laughs) So these are the watchwords. That's right. The um, yeah. The so the Moravian watchwords or the daily texts, and you can still to this day the you could since I think most of your listeners are from North America. There's. Um, you could look up the the North American Moravian website, and you can get them delivered to your inbox if you want mm-hmm. every day. Um, and they're still they're still published uh, every year. We um, my husband actually asked for the German edition for Christmas, and we have a German language bookstore that's quite close to our home. And we were we ordered a copy for him, and they were like, "Oh yes, of course," and placed the order and. And, and it came. So it's a it's a completely known thing uh, still in Germany. And it has wow. been for hundreds of years that they've been publishing it, I think. Yeah. So Bonhoeffer was reading that pretty regularly, daily almost, I, I guess, probably. It, we're not given... I think he moved in and out of it as a practice. Okay. And I know that... I know in... Um, he refers to them directly in in life together, and 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 actually talks about them kind of with warning and caution. He says, like, of course, we know about the watchwords and um, and that they serve some purpose, but but of course, this is not the entire word of God, and if this is all we're taking in, it's inadequate. Mm-hmm. But he, I think, he definitely saw them as um, as a good way into the scriptures and he I think he recommended it to people as sort of a if they didn't have a a regular scriptural practice as um as a way to begin and and I think in times especially when he himself felt stressed um like because I know that these these watchwords were things that he held on to during his short 
time in his second trip back to New York, hmm. um, he he did hold on. He held on to them. So it wasn't that he simply thought they were, um, you know. I, I think they served him in different seasons of his life. But I suspect that as a as a child, he was introduced to them. Um, both his mother. Uh, Paula Bonhoeffer and then his nannies, the the Horn sisters, they mm-hmm. they had all spent time in the city called Hernhut, um, and that's where the the Moravians kind of founded their their um, city. It was their city, basically Lawrence mm-hmm. Protection. That's what that word means, and it's in eastern Germany, um, and not not far from Dresden that would be sort of like the biggest major city that it's near and um it's a wonderful little city and i know that Paula and the Horn sisters had spent time at the Moravian community that was there so they were all kind of formed in certain Moravian practices and i and i don't doubt that when the Bonhoeffers hired those nannies that they actually saw that as a value that they wanted their children um they wanted their children to have exposure to some of those teachings and influences. Mm-hmm. So I do think that it was, it, it could serve as a comfort. Um, it's just, you're given two passages, um, one passage from the old Testament and one from the new. And the expectation is that the, the passages will, um, kind of communicate between each other. Like they interpret one another and they give you something to meditate on and chew on and um, and I think that the the simplicity of the practice brought Bonhoeffer, I think, a lot of comfort. And I think it was a it's a doable thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't this huge scriptural practice. It was something that like kind of anyone could do and and find comfort in. So hmm. yeah, yeah, that makes so much sense. I think especially with kids. Like I I recently had to do a project where I had to write a curriculum for a Bonhoeffer class um, for church history. Um, and, well, I could do it on anything, but obviously just do Bonhoeffer. And then I, uh, yeah, I was like trying to figure out how I would want to open. And I, and I had just read your book, so I, I put that in there. Um, say it for me again. D. Losungen. Losungen. Okay. So yeah. I, I put that in there as sort of like the beginning, but the more I like read, because I, I had like had to type it out. So I saw regularly what, what the text included. And I was like, man, this, this was really simple. It's like, a little devotional that uh, it makes sense that it's really useful for kids. I'm, I'm doing, um, so my girls are three and we're listening to um, the New City Catechism app. Uh, I don't know if, you, if you're familiar with it, um, but it, like they're three, so they don't speak English at all. They just speak like a couple words. But my girls like just love it every single night. They want to sing like the first. The first question of the new city catechism is, "What is our only hope in life and death?" And, and so that we are not our own, but we belong to God. And they every night, not our own, not our own. And it's like, okay, That's we can sing that song. 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 But yeah, I mean, like little short things that um, can kind of get in the head of, of kids and kind of help grow them up. It makes perfect sense as to why they yeah. do that. It's true. And there is something about, you know, I talk about how I had signed up to get these emails even before we moved to Berlin. And um, I still get them every day. I will Hmm. I will look at what the texts are and um, I'll sometimes post it on Twitter. It's like a little thing I do that I'll, you know, I'll just copy it and post it. And um, it's I 
I think you're right that there's, there's something about, um, the, the shared experience of doing this with people who have done it literally for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. And you know, that people are doing it all around the world, meditating on these two pieces of scripture. And then there's usually an accompanying prayer, um, that comes with it too, that kind of reflects some of the themes from scripture. So it's a great kind of first step, um, especially for people that, um, you know, aren't in the habit of reading scripture and kind of chewing on it daily to, to use those as a way to start. That's awesome. Another yeah. term in your book uh, that um, I guess it was new to me. I, I feel like this is one that I should know, uh, but I, I didn't know what it was beforehand. Asadia. Uh, Asadia, Asadia, yeah. see? Didn't know it. No, and it could be Asadia too. And there's, uh, no, there's different ways I think of pronouncing it, like in Latin or, you oh. know, however you're going to say it. So, um, yes, acedia. And I, it's a, it's a term that I abs I desperately want people to recover to, to just to be able to name a condition, um, yeah. is a, is a powerful, powerful help. Um, so yeah. And acedia was one of the, it was considered a deadly sin and then it was dropped, um, or it was sort of rolled into, and it kind of comes under the category of sloth. And, um, but the word itself is, um, we tend to think of sloth as just mere laziness, um, or, you know, just indolence or, uh, you know, a refusal to work, but acedia is a particularly pernicious form of sin, or it's a pernicious temptation. Mm -hmm. And, and it was one that Bonhoeffer, um, was was keenly aware of in his life. And he did not use the word acedia. He used the word tristicia, I think was um, mm -hmm. the way that he would identify it. Um, and he would confess it to his friend, Eberhard Bethke as, as something that was really kind of a besetting issue for him. And it's this sense of, um, of boredom, malaise, uh, a weariness with life's tedium and, and, uh, it tend, it, it, it particularly shows up. There's a lot of monastic writing about it because mm. it's very common. It's a kind of a common condition, particularly among those who are in what we would think of as being sort of a worthy and holy calling. But when that person actually gets into the nitty gritty of that vocation, they go, oh my gosh, I have to live this for the rest of my life. And I can't stand the monastics. I'm around. These people drive me crazy and I can't believe I have to do this. And, and honestly, it's, it shows up in, I think, in any place where we have covenanted, where we are in some kind of committed um, either committed relationship or some kind of commitment even into a, a vocation where we come to know that vocation and we realize, wow, there are aspects of this that are not merely thrilling and wonderful, but are hard. And we look for ways to escape it. So I, I think it's something that shows up in marriage. I think it shows up in civic life where we know our neighbors and they will just simply refuse to be better or refuse to be other than what they are. And so I, I talk about it in Bonhoeffer's life, but then I also say, I think this is something that we need to think about in our civic life, which is we, 
it is very easy for us kind of in our entertainment culture um, and just we can easily slip out of the pain of having to dwell with one another and we might need to reconsider entering that pain Hmm. Um, and we need to do so not just because the pain is good but because to do otherwise means that our hearts are becoming indifferent and stony Um, and I do think that it's a it's a condition that's particularly plagued particularly plagues plagues people who are privileged. Um, And so it's, I, I take some liberties with, I engage with other thinkers. um, One of them being Kathleen Norris, who's someone who's writing has always sustained me. Her mind is a wonderful mind and her writing is as well. And she wrote a whole book called Acedia and Me. So Hmm. Bonhoeffer, we don't get a ton about it in Bonhoeffer's life. But the fact that we are told a little bit about it gave me permission to say, I want to talk about this a little bit more because I see this in me. Mm -hmm. And I think it's far more pervasive. And Kathleen Norris would say the same thing. She thinks it's quite um, the fact that it's a sin and a temptation that we literally have lost the name of is um, makes it actually surprisingly powerful. And to rename, to be able to simply name a condition um, is, is a way to, uh, to begin to fight it mm-hmm. and uh, or to at least kind of to try to slip its knots. Mm-hmm. And that I think is a, and I see Bonhoeffer doing that in some of his scripture meditation, definitely in the way that he engages the Psalms um, and and then in his prayer, his commitments to prayer, because all of those are are disciplines that are acedia busting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. When I remember reading it, and like I said, I was at the very end of my thesis, and just like, oh, this is a good word <laughs> to describe it. how things have been going for the last six months. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. And I think it's true even in parenting where you, you know, on those particularly hard days, you're like, will this never end? And, and you can hear the witness of others to say it will, it will, and you'll get on the other side of it and you're going to miss it. But there are, I think some of, some of the slog of especially very young parenting is it, it, there's a temptation to a CD yet to go, Oh my gosh, I'm never going to get out from under this fog. <laughs> and uh, of like sleeplessness and the mania and yes. yes and and you do need you need help and hope to say it will it will pass it will pass that's right <laughs> and you can repaint your paint the paint on that's your right that's yeah. right <laughs> for the listener, I was I told Laura right before we started um we were talking about our kids and how uh mine are three and here's just a little short anecdote to to give you an idea of why this phrase, acedia, was so important <laughs> to me, was um, the girls, uh, they stopped napping about a year ago because we put them in toddler beds. They were climbing outside their cribs. And uh, so we've been having them just in their in the same room in their toddler beds. And obviously they just like, they don't, they don't nap anymore. You put them in there and they, it's just party time. Um, so... They have a, a teepee in their room, and we, sh- uh, so we will put them down for a nap one day, and they have like a big old teepee that they knocked over, and it fell over and hit the wall and chipped, you know, probably like what's say a square inch of paint off the wall. But when we came in to wake them up, five feet of the wall paint on the wall had been removed. <laughs> they just like took that little chip and peeled all of it. Um, so. <laughs> 
So, uh, yeah, uh, Acedia. I can relate. <laughs> That's a clever story. <laughs> I can relate. Yeah, yeah. But I know that, uh, like, reading that, I'm, uh, I agree with you. I think it's absolutely a phrase that should come back into the loop. Because I think it's something that I notice, me and pro- probably everyone I know have, have a tendency to do this. And <laughs> like like you said, if it, yeah. if it goes unnamed, how are we going to address it yeah yeah and I think that so much of our culture is structured around kind of um allowing us to to kind of engage with acedia and not realize just how much it burns us not realize how much it deadens us um you know we can very easily kind of I think we all anyone who's involved in sort of intellectual study and the need to be focused and disciplined we are surrounded with temptations to just dissipate our focus, you know, into social media or whatever, just a little binge watching this or that. And, um, and I think, you know, when we are given as I think in this pandemic and we're all having to be shut in, um, the, the ways that we can kind of fill the boredom in our life or the tedium mm-hmm. are, uh, we're now kind of facing like, wow, what do I do with myself? Right. And, and we, um, and I think this showed up even for Bonhoeffer when he was in prison, that he had to, he had to face some of his wanting to, you know, escape where he was. And he, it felt like his incarceration was meaningless and, and the way that he engaged with that was was a renewal of discipline and and really being disciplined in his prayer and in his study and to the degree that he was able and um, and that helped obviously it didn't help his incarceration but it it helped him in terms of hmm. having the wherewithal to kind of face what was coming. Yeah, yeah, that definitely makes sense. Yeah. Um, the last yeah. phrase that I have for you, um, I, I think I can pronounce this yeah. one, um, <laughs> civic housekeeping. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> it seems to be a big theme in, in your book. Um, how, how has Bonhoeffer taught you about civic housekeeping and how, how do you think you suggest we should live out that sort of thing? Yeah, and it, it's not, it's very related to acedia. Mm-hmm. Um, I, so it's not a phrase, um, you're not the only person to... Uh, a light on that as an expression. And it, it definitely doesn't come from me. And it also doesn't come from Bonhoeffer. Um, the expression originates with Jane Adams and she was the one who coined that phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, but I see the kind of care that, um, that I think Adams is trying to capture in that word or in the phrase civic housekeeping. I see it uh, very much in Bonhoeffer's life. I see that ethic in him. Um, so housekeeping we understand just the general kind of make your bed and brush your teeth and take out the trash and all of that to make it civic means to see the ways that these practices um bear on the lives of our neighbors and in our cities and our towns and nations ultimately and um we are not merely private selves. We're not merely autonomous selves, but ourselves, mm-hmm. as I know you have been studying the, the theme of autonomy in Bonhoeffer's mm-hmm. um, writings and in life. Um, but really, you know, the way that I might engage, like if I was throwing my socks and underwear on the floor, my husband's going to start going, Laura, pick it up. You know, like this actually bears on his life. And um, we, I think, were tempted 
related to acedia to think that kind of the way that I live in the world doesn't really matter to others. Mm -hmm. So of course Bonhoeffer, when he decided um, to return to Germany and in some ways to kind of stand in the middle of its muck and to take on um, it, in very difficult ways to take on um, places that had fallen into such moral and spiritual ruin um, by entering in the into the political um, conspiracy. Um, he was engaging as a German, and he was engaging in, in some ways, engaging in a kind of civic housekeeping. But I also use it as the expression to to identify places that that brought him strength. I, I was particularly struck in my time um, at the Bonhoeffer House that. Bonhoeffer was shaped in relationship to others. And, and um, a lot of his thinking, even though he does a lot of very interesting and original thinking, in terms of his practices and in terms of how he engaged with other people, all of these relationships that he had, even relationships that were part of the conspiracy, were ones that were, had been part of his life for a very long time. Mm. And they were not ones that he simply cultivated. They were ones that were given to him. They were given to him in, by virtue of family and marriage. Like some of his fellow conspirators were were men that he grew up with and then who married his sisters and um, so he actually was tethered in a very deep way, even beyond, you know, the conspiracy. He was tethered to many of these people's lives. Um, and those lives, those relationships have been formed over, you know, a very long time. Yeah. So our, I think it's, it's important to see in him that he, he belonged to people. And um, there were claims on his life that he was in some ways born into and that he didn't have a lot of control over. And that's true for all of us, right? Like we're not self-made. We're absolutely not autonomous. And But we still think the one thing, the place of hope that I hope anyone who reads this book is will see is that our life in some ways, okay, we're not we aren't Bonhoeffer, right? But it, the, all in all the ways that we are human like Bonhoeffer, we are like him and we have available to us relationships um, and relationships that we can cultivate or not cultivate. We, mm -hmm. can, we can allow people to speak into our lives or not. We can care for our places and some of that care might actually be an identifying with the guilt and, and seeking ways to repent. Mm -hmm. um, those are all available to us. Um, and so anyway, so the civic housekeeping, my book closes, as you know, and as other readers may know, I closed with, um, I compare the, um, in some ways, many different houses, but one of them is this one, a building that I would pass all the time when I was taking my son to and from his school. And it's a place that, um, it basically is kind of caught in the middle of a civic conflict about how the building is going to be repurposed. And in the midst of this conflict, the building has completely fallen into ruin and no one seems to be caring for it. And the fact that it's caught in this in this um, conflict over, you know, zoning or however it's going to be settled in, you know, today in Berlin, it's, you know, still an ongoing dispute. Um, there it, it needs someone who cares. And mm -hmm. I make the argument that we 
our civic spaces need people who care for them. And some of that might just be simply learning that civic life exists and that it merits our attention. Um, and, and, and then it needs people that are willing to say, I will be responsible there. I will, as imperfectly as I can, I will try to take responsibility for my places. And of course, I think we're seeing that in really beautiful ways, um, in the midst of this pandemic, um, Mm -hmm. the ways that people are expressing for the good to say, we will, we will take on you know, some levels of suffering in order to, to care for our neighbors, or we will continue to do our difficult work. Um, I also think we're seeing the ways that our, our societies do not honor, um, the, the kind of people that really keep our society functioning, like Mm -hmm. the people that stock grocery shelves or the people that collect trash or, these are people that engage in some of the most essential forms of civic care and um and they should be treated with the honor that is due them we see the this is essential work this Mm -hmm. is the essential work of our lives and um and it's a and it looks a lot more like housekeeping than um heroics it looks a lot more menial than that and um, and I think those are people that we should hold in honor. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's so good. Yeah, I, I can definitely relate to that. Like every time I go to the grocery store now, which isn't often <laughs> these days, but uh, yeah, you just, you see the people that you normally see and you see them in a completely different light than you did before. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's, that's, you know, obviously no one, I don't think, Oh, well, I want to be careful how I say this. I think that God can use all kinds of calamities to bring good. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think that God wishes harm, ill, or evil on any human life. Um, so, and I think he longs to see this wrapped up (laughs) and, uh, and we pray to him to, to, to do, to do what we can't. Right. And, and, but um, and to enable us to do what we can. And I do hope that there are some some real recalibrations to to the way that we esteem the work that's done in this world. Absolutely. Well, I, yeah. I have one last question for you. Um, it's We usually do the Desert Island question, but you've already answered that before. Uh, so I, I racked <laughs> my brain for this one. Um, uh, two books uh, that you would suggest reading while quarantined so until this pandemic over what's a nice book to like i'm locked in the house i need to read a book which ones yeah don't have to be bonhoeffer books any books no it's not right no i i would actually and i have just reread it again i would recommend kathleen norris's acedia and me i think this is a great time to be to be reading that book um she also talks a lot about death in it and i um, I think for many of us, this has been a time like my husband and I have talked some about end of life stuff in this mm-hmm. time, um, about some of our wishes. And I think it's, it's prudent. It can be a source of wisdom to talk about, um, you know, how we want to answer some of those end of life questions. And for some that has come abruptly and too short and which is, was true for Bonhoeffer. So I would recommend Acedia and me, um, of by Kathleen Norris. And then, um, another book that I would recommend, um, 
is it's not it's it's not a, a sustained piece of nonfiction, but is um, John Bailey's Diary of Private Prayer. It's a uh, it's a short kind of month long morning and evening prayer book, and they're really beautiful prayers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's great to have wise wise words um, for prayer. And, uh, and I would highly recommend John Bailey's Diary of Private Prayer. It's a really lovely book. Awesome. Well, uh, go, go, go read those and go read go Keith DeBonifer's House. That's right. <laughs> well, that is a third. That's right. There's other book recommendations there. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, thank you so much for joining me and being willing to come back on. This is great. It was a real pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Corey. Yeah, no problem. Uh, so the book, uh, Keys for Bonhoeffer's House, it can be found um, anywhere, Amazon. Yeah. So it's it's from uh, Fortress Press. It's now been kind of rebranded as Broadleaf mm. Books. Um, but it's, uh, yes, yeah, so you could reach out to the publisher, but you could find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, if you want to find an independent book publisher. Um, I recommend Hearts and Minds. Uh, booksellers in Dallastown, Pennsylvania, and they can ship uh, ship anywhere in the U.S. or in the world. So reach out to them as well. They awesome. have a good good selection of books. Yeah. And then if people want to connect with you on Twitter, I guess. Yep, I'm L M Fabricky, so L M F A B R Y C K Y at Twitter, and I'm on Twitter. And uh, and then I also have a website um, that has a place where people could reach out to me contact wise, uh, and and I'm available there. And that's just laurafabricky.com. So it's a very simple website, just a little placeholder. But um, I am reachable through that. Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you again. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk soon. I hope so. Thanks, Corey. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bonhoeffer Podcast. And thank you to Laura Fabricky for coming on. You can find her book, Keys to Bonhoeffer's House, anywhere books are sold. If you like what you hear, please leave a review in your podcast app and it will help others find the show. And I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. And as always, thanks for listening.